So let's continue with our series in the Old Testament by looking at stories of God's creativity and beauty. Because God reveals his character through stories. So I want to ask you, is God a God of order or a God of chaos? What would you say? Order. Order. Okay. So would you say that was order? (laughs) Yep. Okay. And what about that? That looks like chaos. Which which is a better representation of God? Which tells God's story better? The second one does. So actually, um, it's it's, uh, not quite as simple as that because God is complex and God loves diversity. And so he's not one who everything is simple and rigid. And when you look at the order in this picture here, what's happening, there's a whole intricate food chain that's happening in there. There's a web of dependencies. Just all the plants there that are, that are um, with animals and with insects, and the whole thing is just so beautifully done. And what's amazing is that with God's creation is that as you dig down, as you put it under a microscope, you see more levels of beauty, more levels of, of creativity, and it just goes down and down. Now, if you take something that, that humans have made and you put it under a microscope, the, the more you look down, the more the flaws you'll see. You know, I could take this light and I could look underneath and I could see the rough edges in the design and it would, get, you know, it would look rougher and rougher. But with God, you actually see more levels of beauty and, and intricacy as you go down and down. That's how just God, God is. Um, but it can, if you look at it at a high level, it can look like chaos to start with. So how do you discover the order in something like this? Can you tell me? Something that might look like chaos. Yeah? You study it. You look at it. And that act of studying creation is an act, and I want to say it's the act that reveals God's beauty. And so God's creativity, he loves uh, complexity. Um, He loves diversity. Uh, just look at what he's created. I mean, we've got, got so much diversity here. None of us even have the same haircut here. There's, there's, God loves to have diversity. He loves beauty. God has a value on things being beautiful, but he likes to hide his beauty for us to discover. Um, and so that we put it under a microscope and we say, wow. And we honor him by searching for it and making it known and by demonstrating the beauty that he's put in us. So those of you here who work in science, uh, you are are, um, revealing this creativity. And those of you who work in the arts or in in, uh, some other aspect, don't worry, your time will come in just a minute. So one more point um, that... um, Okay, and I wanted to show you another picture. Yeah, here's another picture of just the complexity. And every single part of that, including the giraffe there, you you start looking more and more closely, you'll see more creativity, more design that's in there. So let's look at some scripture, shall we? And we're going to start back with Genesis. And God saw everything he'd made, and behold, it was very good. 
And then God begins to create and he says, Out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight. So he's not just making it functional. He's making things that have got like unnecessary parts to them that make them beautiful. Have you ever looked at flowers and you think, well, I know that flowers are supposed to attract insects, but like that is over the top, the way that that is just so amazingly beautiful. And God likes to be over the top in his creation of beauty quite often. Um, And we have in uh, Genesis 2, the, the gold of the land is good, Bedellium and onyx stone are there. He'd like put precious stones there just to show his beauty. And then we have um, in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky displays his handiwork. Day after day, it speaks out. Night after night, it reveals his greatness. So it's actually telling us something about God, shouting about God. So God is an artist, but is God a sculptor? Well, in ancient times, clay was the most common thing you would use for sculpting. And so pottery was the main result from that. And there's a lot of allusions of God being a sculptor. Because the word used when it said God formed the man, that's Adam, is actually literally sculpted. God sculpted the man from the soil of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Uh, Every animal and bird is sculpted by God in Genesis 2.19. And then there's a remarkable verse in Psalm 139.16. David is speaking personally. He says, your eyes saw my unformed substance in the womb and literally unsculpted. Um, And then he said, the days that were were sculpted for me when as yet there was none of them. So he describes how God, how he's been sculpted by God in this way. Now, one of the most remarkable uses of words in the Old Testament is the word that we have for, for this creativity. Oh, here's another one. The sea is his for he made it, his, land, his hand sculpted the dry land. So you think of those kind of the beautiful cliffs, you see the mountains, you see extraordinary vistas in the Rocky Mountains or whatever. God has sculpted this world. And uh, he continues to sculpt it when, you know, when things happen that change the landscape, he sculpts it. He's doing something in Iceland, I believe, with a volcano right now. <laughs> um, so there's a word, the word wisdom in Hebrew is hokmah. And what's interesting is the word wisdom is the same, it's the same word for creativity. Hokmah is used for wisdom and hokmah is used for creativity. So both wisdom and artistic skill. So in Hebrew say, there's such wisdom in guitar playing and singing. Um, Sachet was showing such wisdom in pressing the keys and Ruth's wisdom in singing. It doesn't sound right in English, but yet absolutely the right thing to say in Hebrew because in, in, in the, the Old Testament, in order to, to play the right notes at the right time in the right way, it required wisdom. It required that choice of what to do and what to say. How you sing... Uh, how you make melody is something that requires wisdom. And so 
painting shows wisdom. So Anne in her painting is showing wisdom. Heather in her photography. Ruth in her weaving. Like even things like construction and renovation and any kind of creativity, writing computer programs, anything like that is, is showing wisdom because wisdom and creativity are two sides of the same coin. We read in Proverbs 3.19, The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. So this sculpting is an act of wisdom. Uh, so let's look at uh, some more verses on that. Exodus 28. This is making the garments for the priests in the temple. He says, you must make holy garments for your brother Aaron, for glory and for beauty. You are to speak to all who are specially skilled, whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom, so they may make Aaron's garments to set him apart to minister as my priests. So in order to make these garments particularly beautiful, God's going to put his wisdom in those people so they know how to make their threads just in the right place to give them the greatest beauty. So this is not the kind of concept we have in our culture where we tend to divide the two. But in their culture, uh, in God, God's revelation, these two are one. The artisans are to use the gold, blue, purple, scarlet, and fine linen. They're to make ephod of gold, blue, purple, scarlet, and fine twisted linen, the work of an artistic designer. Some more examples of using this word. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the spirit of God, with wisdom and understanding, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood to work in every craft. So God is saying, my spirit put on that person is going to enable them to create these beautiful things because God himself is creative. And if we have the spirit of a creative God in us, we'll be able to do these beautiful things. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that amazing? Uh, we often think of a God who's very dour and he's just interested in uh, right and wrong and truth and falsehood. and uh, Something like beauty would be not terribly important to him. But God is passionate about beauty because it's core to who he is. Later on in Exodus, every woman who was wise-hearted spun with her hands and brought what she'd spun, blue, purple, or scarlet yarn, or fine linen. And all the women whose heart stirred them up in wisdom spun goat's hair. He filled them with wisdom to do every sort of work done by an engraver or by a designer or an embroiderer in blue. And Moses called Bezalel and Oholiab and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put wisdom, everyone whose heart was stir stirred him up to come to do the work. So, quite a number of different arts there listed. And I mentioned earlier about music and the temple worship. There were songs written for it. Unfortunately, we don't have the music 
the actual melodies anymore. Um, actually, that's probably not unfortunate, because if we did, we'd continue to use them even if they were inappropriate for our culture. But I think like the actual melodies, people create a co- uh, for whatever culture they're in. But we know that there are some, some little markings in the Psalms that look like they were probably melodic marks in, in containing the melody. But what they mean is, not, is something that's lost to us now. Um, so, but even foods, there's a, a verse in the Old Testament that suggests like the, the beauty of, of, of pre- presenting an amazing feast is that that is something which is involved in this hukmah. Actually, there's another art form that God is interested in, and that's drama. Um, he's an amazing playwright. Um, you know, like reality plays, like the, the Old Testament. You think of the stories that he's written. Um, he gets, he, he gets real-life actors and does these stories. Can you think of any epic dramas from the Old Testament? Joseph, yeah. Jonah, yeah. What else? Joshua, Hezekiah. None of you have come up with the one I was going to go to start with. Elijah. How about a little boy with a stone sling? (laughs) David and Goliath. I mean, it's just such a classic drama, isn't it? David and Goliath, like people use that nowadays. Oh, it's a David and Goliath situation where there's some like great brutal force and small person that everybody's surprised what what they managed to do. And so God creates these dramas. You know, Samson and Delilah, the the whole the whole um, dramatic story that has unfolded. And God continues today with drama in your life and in mine, sculpting amazing events. Challenges, suspense, victories, um, difficulties that he's going to ultimately resolve. Um, but you know what? We might say um, uh, God is God's uh, actually, yes. Is God a love of beauty? Is it, is it a main theme of the Bible? Is that really? Like I've talked about it, but is that really a main theme of the Bible? Well, let me tell you that... Um, uh, nearly half of the Old Testament is written in poetry. Nearly half of it is written in poetry. And in a a future sermon, I'm going to talk about how Hebrew poetry works because it's a little different to how we think of poetry. It's not rhyming poetry, but it's all about symmetry and balance, and it's more like a tapestry than something that is like our poetry. But I'm going to give you some examples, and here I have one called Love in the Spring. That's a name that we've given to it. So this is Song of Solomon. And uh, this is a, a, there's a, a man from Oxford University, um, W.G.E. Watson, who's written a book where, on Hebrew poetry. And he says that this is the most beautiful poetry, poem he's found in all of ancient culture. The thing is that I'm going to show you a little bit of it, but we really won't catch the depth of it in our translation. But Love in the Spring is the title that he gave it. Up now, my pretty darling, come on, for the winter is past. The rain is gone and done with. Now, what's going on in this poem? It's a love song, but it's also a song about the spring and about garden growing. And what he's doing, he's cleverly blending the idea that, you know, our love has gone through a winter. 
But now our love is entering a springtime and things are going to be good. And he's weaving together words that are refer to a garden and words that refer to human relationships in a way that kind of gives double meanings all the way through. So he says, the winter is past, the rain is gone and done with. You know, you can think of metaphorical rain in our relationship, that's gone. The blooms can be seen in the land, pruning slash singing. Now I put that in black there in the middle. That is the central word in, the, in this song. And the word is like a perfect puzzle where everything is symmetrically balanced. And this word can mean perfectly singing or pruning. It's exactly the same word and it's got this double meaning. The time is near. The turtle dove's voice can be heard. In our land, the fig, fig ripens her fruit and the vines in blossom give off scent. Up now, my pretty darling, come on. So it's like a cut diamond in its beauty in Hebrew, where everything balances completely and meticulously from beginning to end in its symmetry. So here's something that's a little different. This is from Isaiah. And uh, I love this. This is a famous verse about salvation. And though your sins be as scarlet, they should be white as snow. You've probably, you probably know it. But if we see how the words are written out in Hebrew, I'm going to read it in the order it's written, and then we'll see the balance. Though be your sins as scarlet, as snow they shall be, as white. Though they be red as crimson, as wool they shall be. So that's, and we can understand how that, what that means. But when you look at the way, the order, it's got this symmetry. So it starts, your, be your sins, and then it ends, they shall be. So there's like past sins, future sins. And then we have scarlet, snow, crimson, wool. So we've got these four things balanced together, and they're images from the natural world. And then right in the middle, they shall be as white, though they be red. They shall be white, though now they'll be red. So this, again, in the Hebrew, is just like a perfect thing. Um, and uh, like nowadays in English, we'd probably say, oh, God can forgive your sins. He can wash them all away. Okay, well, it means the same thing, but it doesn't quite have the, that, that, that um, something that this has. Because in their mindset, they would say, if a thing is important... It's worth saying well. If it's that important, why just say it? Why not actually say it beautifully? Why not say it creatively? Which is something we don't really think of. We just lay it out there. You know, we've got guidelines for meeting here and masking and everything like that. And it's there, point, 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 point. They wouldn't put it in poetry. (laughs) Of course not. (laughs) That would be ridiculous. In our culture, you don't do that. But in their culture, important things could be written in poetry. And that would carry, include the weight of how they're written. So, um, so here's an example, not from poetry, but from sto- story, just from narrative. Because they didn't just apply artistry to the way they wrote the poetic parts of the scripture, but the narrative parts where you wouldn't expect it have this kind of thing. So here's, um, I, I got this from um, a man called uh, J- Jan Fockelman, He's written a book called Narrative Art in Genesis, and it's amazing the things that he's, he, he and his team of scholars have found there. So it starts off, Genesis 28.10, Jacob leaves the promised land. He has this, um, he, trit, he, 
he cheats on his brother. His brother wants to kill him, so he has to run. He, and he goes, and the first, when he comes the first night, he lies down to sleep, and he has this vision of the ladder. And I'm sure you know that. So in, in Genesis 28.11, it says, The sun sets. Then 12 through 16, he has a nighttime encounter with God, and he vows to serve God if God protects him till he returns. And then we have at least 14 years outside the land. We know it's at least 14 because he had to serve seven years for each of his wives. And then we have Genesis 32. He has a nighttime encounter with God who gives him a new name. Now, it hasn't mentioned the sun in all of those chapters until now. The next mention of the sun from 28.11 is in 32.31. It says the sun arises after he has this wrestling with God all night. And then he returns to the land. So can you tell me what's going on? Can anybody guess what's going on? What the writer is trying to get us to think about when he, when he uses this image of the sun? Any thoughts? It was a dark, like it's almost like night, night, it's night time of night time in his life. You're right, because he's away from the land. And he's, he's like he's putting bookends, like putting parentheses around that period and saying, you know, that was the time when he said, you know, uh, I'm going to, are you, are you faithful to me? If you're faithful to me, I'll worship you. And so it's like, He's testing God. At the end of that time, he says, yes, I'm going to serve God. So um, there are lots of these woven into the story, the way the stories are told. Um, And there are some discoveries that that have been made recently about just the beauty of how this is done. So you might say, well, is this happening in the New Testament as well? Well, it does happen in the New Testament, particularly... um, John is particularly interested in it. Paul, as well, in a lot of his writings, has got this kind of beauty. And so I'm going to give you an example here from John 4. Um, This is uh, the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and we have the nobleman who comes to Jesus. So Jesus came again to Cana in Galilee, where he'd made water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, so he says this to the man, there's the official, the official says to him, sir, Come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go your way, your son lives. Which is obviously a test of faith. Because the man wants Jesus to come. He's saying, no, I'm not coming. Go your way, your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. Hey, hang on a minute. But Jesus has just said, you won't believe until you see the sign. Like, as Jesus contradicted himself in just a few verses. And he went his way. Oh, we're getting, we're getting something matching up here. We're going, go your way. He went his way. And then we see, are we going to see something about the child living? Oh, we are. Look at that. It matches. As he was going down, 
His servants met him and told him, your son lives. So we have again perfect symmetry. So can you tell me what's going to happen next, if this is symmetrical? He sees signs and wonders and believes, right? Yes, that's what we're expecting. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said yesterday at the seventh hour the fever let him, left him. So the father knew it was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live, signs and wonders, and he himself believed and all his household. Oh, but it said he believed in the middle. But then this is, he did believe when he saw the signs and wonders. What's going on here? Well, what's going on is very important because John is trying to show us that believing is not black and white. You, there's a stages in believing. And he wouldn't have seen the sign of wonder had he not taken up Jesus on his word and gone his way. So John is getting us thinking. He's making us think about belief. What is it? Um, and challenging us to think through, oh, it's not quite as simple as I thought it was. And then, just in case we, we, we don't see the symmetry, see how it started? What are we going to expect at the end? A reference to making the water wine, maybe? This was the second sign that Jesus did when he came come from Judah to Galilee. So, it marks this off. Okay, that was the first sign. Uh, and it's, this is the second sign. So beautiful balance there in that story. So God loves this kind of thing. He loves this. And um, so I want to say that the height of beauty, the height of God's revelation of beauty is the person of Jesus Christ. Now, in Proverbs we read, by wisdom the Lord laid the foundation of the, of the earth. He established the heavens by understanding. We know that it was through Jesus all these things were created. And this and many other Old Testament allusions speak of Jesus as being the full revelation of God's wisdom and beauty. But was Jesus stunningly attractive physically? No, he wasn't. The prophecy in Isaiah tells us, you know, there wasn't anything particularly attractive about him at all. What was beautiful about him? Well, it was his person. People, there was just an attraction to him. There was the way he reacted to people, the way he showed love, the way he cared for people, the way he, he you, can, you can think of, you know, the, the, the woman who was taken in adultery, the, 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 the woman of Samaria, the one who came and washed his feet, who was just taken with his beauty. How these people were enraptured by him. And what is that? It's because of this inner beauty. And I want to say to you that we've been talking about outer beauty so far, but actually inner beauty is even more important. And this is what Jesus had. And this is something that's emphasized in the New Testament. 1 Peter 3, let your beauty not be external, the braiding of hair, the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Not that you shouldn't wear those things, but that shouldn't be what you're looking for for beauty. But the inner person of the heart, the lasting beauty of a gentle and tranquil spirit, which is precious in God's sight. So this is where I want to end this morning. To be filled with the spirit is to be filled with God himself. It is God's spirit we're filled with. 
God created humanity in his own image and we are to reflect God's beauty. So what about you? How are you to reflect God's beauty in his life? Because you're called to do that. Well, it might be in our work. You know, we've got people who, who work in the sciences. We've got people who work in, in art. We've got people who work in, in all sorts of things, all kinds of art here, all kinds of sciences, all kinds of technologies that you're working in. If you're working with children, what an amazing opportunity to develop them as people. What, isn't that, what a privilege. Or if you're just working like with other co-workers, you are able to show that beauty that was in Jesus Christ. And I would say that last thing is the preeminent way that we show beauty, as we show to other people that we have the Spirit of God in us. And we have this kind of beauty talked about in 1 Peter chapter 3. So I want to put this last slide up then and say how to be creative like God. And I want to say, first of all, concentrate on being filled with the Spirit. That's what you should do. Just ask God to fill you. Spend time with God to be filled with the Spirit. Because actually, you can't do it without that. That is the key thing. And then allow his beauty to fill you and flow through you. And part of that is a recognition of what we've been talking about today. Because if you don't realize that this is part of your role, you won't do it. But allow that to happen. And associated with that... Don't look down on enjoying things. Don't look down on beautiful things as if somehow God isn't interested in them. But the most important way of reflecting God's image of beauty is in who you are as you are filled with Jesus. And I want to end with that. Who we are as we're filled with Jesus should be something that the people around us notice. There's this this peace that we have this reflection of God's beauty that's in our character, in who we are. So I'm just going to pray right now that all of us experience more of that in this coming week and this coming year. Father, we thank you for this wonderful beauty that is so touching, that is so so impactful that we see around us in this world. from a large to intricate level. Thank you for the beauty that you've given human beings throughout this world to create wonderful things. Thank you for the creativity you've put in us. And thank you, God, for the spirit that you've given us that we can show your beauty. So, God, I ask you that each one here and each one who's joining us on the internet will experience your spirit shining with a beauty, just like Moses' face shone when he'd been with you, that we will spend time with you and this, this beauty of God will shine forth and people will recognize there is something different and they'll be attracted by the beauty, just as they were to your son, Jesus Christ. They will be asked this because he lives us, lives in us. And we ask it in his name. Amen.